Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 28th of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Derrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and also Mark Anderson uh, reporting from the United States. Okay, let's get straight on. Now, last Thursday, uh, the delayed Monetary Policy Committee uh, meeting ha happened at the Bank of England. Uh, it was delayed, of course, because of the, uh, the Queen's funeral. Uh, but uh, they announced that we, they would be decreasing the asset purchase programme by £80 billion. So that's quantitative easing, otherwise known. Uh, so they're going to reduce that by £80 billion. Uh, today, unfortunately, they've had to reverse that decision and a bit more. So this was the uh, press release issued by the Bank of England just uh, an hour or so ago. Uh, and what are they saying? Well, here's the key paragraph. To achieve this, the bank will carry out, and this is to, to achieve what they describe as, as uh, stability in the markets uh, with respect to bonds. Uh, to achieve this, the bank will carry out temporary purchases of long-dated UK government bonds from the 20th of September. Uh, the purpose of these purchases will be to restore orderly market conditions. Uh, the purchases will be carried out on whatever scale is necessary to achieve this outcome, uh, the operation will be fully indemnified by Her Majesty's Treasury. So uh, they may be uh, the standard quantitative easing. They may be reducing that by 80 billion pounds, but uh, they are basically deciding, David, to increase it again uh, under these particular circumstances by as much as they feel like uh, uh, in order to restore what they describe as orderly conduct. Um, and, but of course, the taxpayer underwrites that. Taxpayer always underwrites quantitative easing. Not a lot of people actually know that, Mike, but the taxpayer has underwritten it all. Any losses uh, from this process are paid for by you, me, and everyone watching. Isn't that wonderful? And yes, um, it's a temporary programme. And um, just like when uh, Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, that also was a temporary measure. And uh, we'll see how long this one lasts. Um, well, the government statement said, I just want to, to uh, highlight this. The Chancellor authorised the Governor's request for an indemnity for the operation, uh, which will in turn ensure that financial conditions remain accessible for households and businesses. Uh, how believable is that statement? Well, it's, it's, it's nothing to do with households and businesses. This is just, just nonsense. It's to do with the fact that government debt was becoming rapidly unstable and unaffordable. It, it spiked up from, I mean, a couple of years ago, government debt was well under percent. It was almost nothing. They're getting the money for nothing. And it, it spiked up to 5% on the 30-year, uh, 4.5% bit percent on the 10-year the, the deal. And it was, it was becoming a big problem. So they, they stepped in to prevent that. They're monetizing the debt, the government's, in one hand, via the Treasury, um, buying the, the debt. On the other hand, it's, it's generating the debt. It's entirely circular. And it's for their interests, not ours. Of course, if the entire system collapses, they are right to point, and this is how it's always done, they point at Main Street and say, it's going to get you. We're only operating on your, uh, on your behalf. That's how it was done in 2007. That's why there was a $750 billion bailout of the banks then with uh, a gun held to the head of the American people. Uh, well, we'll come on to the effect uh, that this is going to have on people in a second. Before we get to that, let's look at uh, some more information. So here we've got uh, UK 10-year gilts, and uh, the, the, the graph shows quite clearly how that has gone in the last period of the time, and the same for the US Treasury bonds. 
Yeah, it's, it, although not quite as dramatic, something similar is happening in America. You see the US Treasury 10-year bonds are up to nearly 4%. Uh, 10 year goals at this point was 4.4, it's just over 4.1% now. And if we go to the next um, the next chart, I was having a look at how the uh, the yield curve was. Now you see the blue line here for the United States yield curve. This is how much the United States is paying for different ages of debt. And you see, very unusually, it's sloping downwards. It's cheaper to buy, to get for for the United States to borrow money for 40 years than it is for it to borrow money for two years. This is called an inverted yield curve and is very interesting. And you see how that, that's happened recently within the last six months. And I thought I'd check out Italy. There's a lot of news about Italy today. We'll cover some of that later. And we see it's also got an inverted yield curve, which made me wonder just how many countries do have an inverted yield curve? And the answer is lots. Uh, lots and lots. In fact, here we have 19 countries, including the United Kingdom, have an inverted yield curve. And what does this mean? It's uh, often considered a predictor of economic recession. Yes, well, in fact, the bank uh, already believes we are in an economic recession. Uh, but it gets pretty bad when even for a first world country anyway, when even the International Monetary Fund is uh, urging caution. Well, this was a little bit ironic. So the IMF uh, decided that the, the tax cuts announced, announced by the Liz Trust government were really unacceptable and warned against them stoking inflation, really. So they said that they launched a biting attack in the UK's plan to implement 45 billion of debt-funded tax cuts, uh, urging the government to reevaluate the plan um, and said that the untargeted package threatens to stoke soaring inflation. And they were very hard-hitting about it. Uh, they said it's important that fiscal policy does not uh, work at cross-purposes with monetary policy. Well, OK, fair enough. Um, and uh, uh, Brian Deese, director of White House National Economic Council, said he wasn't surprised by the reaction to the UK's fiscal plan, saying it puts the central bank in a position of having to uh, potentially to move even tighter. Well, he was exactly wrong about that, wasn't he? <laughs> but that's the... Uh, that's the IMF for you. Uh, this is 24 hours. It's a long time in, in the world of the IMF. He added it's particularly important to maintain a focus on fiscal prudence. Where have we heard that one before? Mr. Brown, he's gone but not forgotten. Uh, now, uh, Eswar uh, Prasad, former senior IMF official, said it's a hard-hitting, pointed criticism, pulls few punches. It's as close as IMF language comes to calling a set of policies irresponsible, ill-advised and ill-timed. On the subject of irresponsible, ill-advised and ill-timed, I give you what all of the central bankers have been doing to our money supply for the last 10 years. Uh, this is a chart of M1 in the United Kingdom. So that's uh, cash, coins, um, uh, bank deposits, overnight deposits, um, and uh, here we have uh, a chart that goes from 2012 up to present date. And you see that the money supply has more than doubled. So the bankers double the money supply and they'll say, oh, it's the tax cuts that are going to cause the inflation. Oh, you shouldn't do tax cuts. Well, really, I'm not entirely convinced by that one, Mike, are you? Uh, not, not, <laughs> not one second. Of course, if you take a longer term uh, uh, look at it, it's even worse. Uh, but anyway, let's uh, let's move on. Well, I was saying to you, Mike, the other day that what Liz Trust was doing was uh, essentially a, 
a, a rerun of Reaganomics. And I thought it'd be worth just uh, touching base on what that actually was in practice. Uh, here we have a, a, an old article from Murray Rothbard, the, the great economist. Uh, he says, I come to bury Reaganomics, not to praise it. Um, and he looks at how they've achieved their own goals. Um, in general the terms, uh, in general terms, Reagan pledged to return or advance to a free market and to get government off our backs. That was the promise. How did they do? Well, he called for massive cuts in government spending, um, drastic cuts in taxation, a balanced budget by 1984, because that spends if Jimmy Carter had a budget deficit of 74 billion. Uh, a return to the gold standard, um, uh, as well as lots of other free market laissez-faire policies. So the first thing that went was the gold standard pledge. Um, President Reagan appointed an allegedly impartial commission to study the problem because they're independent. A commission overwhelmingly packed with lifelong opponents of the gold standard found that the gold standard wasn't to be reintroduced. So that one killed that pledge. On government spending, um, uh, the uh, last year of uh, government spending under Jimmy Carter, the government spent $591 billion. Um, the last year of the Reagan administration, $990 billion, an increase of 68%. So slashing government spending, no. Uh, deficits, we're going to slash deficits. Jimmy Carter had deficits of, of a horrendous $40 to $50 billion. And uh, Reagan uh, was promised to achieve a balanced budget. And... Um, under Reagan, the deficit settled down to around $200 billion. And uh, Rothbard con con concludes, all of this, along with the universal misperception of Reaganomics, illustrates once more the wisdom of those incisive political philosophers, Gilbert and Sullivan, quote, things are not always what they seem. Skim milk masquerades as cream. You've got to love Murray Rothbard. Okay, so the question is, how attractive is gold at the moment? Well, I put this in to see, to illustrate just what the problem is with the money supply and the importance of 1971 when the last remnants of the gold standard was carried away. This chart shows London house prices. 1968 is indexed as one, and we're now approaching 120 in sterling terms. So house prices in London have risen 120 times since 1968 in sterling. Look at the look at the gold colored line. That's the price in gold. It hasn't budged. House prices haven't gone up. The houses haven't become unaffordable. We've become poorer yes. because the money has been devalued and we haven't noticed because it's happened gradually. Okay, keep going. Okay, um, right, so we've got here a wee bit more information about what's actually happening in the markets. This is a, a, a dollar uh, Japanese, Japan yen chart, right? So it used to be uh, what, a year ago or so, we had 108 yen to get a dollar, now it's 144. So the yen is plummeting. We've still got interest rates stuck at 0.25 of a percent by government policy. Uh, the euro's the same. The euro's plummeted from one, uh, $1.18 to uh, 95 cents. So the euro's going down. And the, the British pound chart is very odd because it was going up, right? And then all of a sudden it went off a cliff. That doesn't look like a genuine market move to me. It doesn't strike me as something that's actually um, uh, uh, related to 
market forces. That's, that seems to me to be as much a political move as anything else. It's clear that the powers that be, the IMF and elsewhere, do not want tax cuts. That's not on their agenda. And um, we've got here um, one other uh, market that's worth looking at is, is a thing called the repo market. It's a sign of trouble if it starts to go wrong. Brookings here explains what it is. Uh, a repo, a repurchase agreement is a short-term secured loan. One party sells securities like treasury bills, gilts and things like that to another and agrees to repurchase those securities later at a higher price. The securities serve as collateral. The difference between the securities initial price and the repurchase price is the interest paid on the loan, known as the repo rate. Right? So these are very short-term, often overnight, very large volume loans between uh, financial institutions that basically oil the, the wheels of the banking system. So how's that going? Well, it was sitting at near zero and it started to shoot up to around 3%, as you see in this graph here. Taking a slightly longer timeline, we see, well, that's up to where it was around about 2019. When there was a huge spike, that's when the repo market basically locked up and there wasn't enough liquidity in the system and the Fed stepped in to print a ton of money to, sort, to stop the market crashing and having another banking liquidity crisis. And if you look at an even longer timeline, you can see here the, the, the stack up to that crisis in 2019. You can see the stack up which was uh, the housing bubble um, coming up to uh, the crash uh, quite clearly on that chart. And you also see the effect of 9-11 and all the money printing around 9-11. So it's a very interesting chart. It shows what's been happening in a geopolitical and economic um, uh, terms. And it also shows that something is happening now. So it's one to watch. Okay, uh, David, a question from me. Who is controlling this uh this system. Uh, we've got stuff happening across nation states. We could say it's globalist. Um, is it the politicians in control of the money or have we got another group of people who are controlling uh, money production, the money supply? Well, at the moment in the UK, the Bank of England is, is printing money on behalf of the government. So it is, it is, in the short term, locally, it's just government monetization of debt. Um, in the longer term, there's clearly people at international level, if you want to call them a deep state, in places like the IMF that have a different policy and they've got, a, they've got an agenda. But of course, finding out exactly what that is, is notoriously difficult, but it clearly doesn't tally with the current Liz Truss, Kwarte uh, Kertang uh, administration agenda and policy. Um, and then you've got uh, the Fed doing what they're doing, which is um, actually tightening quite a lot. They're driving the dollar up to enormous levels, very, very high levels. That's going to turn soon. And there will be a huge drop there too. What you're seeing is a great deal of instability. When there's instability, there's, it falls, there's political instability. And that obviously promotes change and uh, dismantling of existing systems. This is what we've got to look out for. Okay, so in my mind, the key question is, are the politicians driving the banks or the banks driving the politicians? And I'm going to suggest it's the latter. Uh, well, let's bring the Bank of England back on then, because uh, we've got nothing to worry about. Here's Andrew Bailey saying uh, the Monetary Policy Committee will not hesitate to change interest rates by as much as needed to return inflation to the 2% target 
sustainably in the medium term. So that was put out uh, literally about two hours before uh, they pushed out their notification of the money printing. Uh, but well, the question is, what impact is this having on ordinary people? And uh, let's bring in a few tweets here. Uh, so here is uh, one saying, uh, nothing helps you tackle your rising food and energy bills like your mortgage doubling overnight. Uh, the UK is an effing parody. And uh, I thought this was because, of course, people are now in a position where, where they're saying mortgages being withdrawn from uh, the markets, from the, from the lenders, which means the people that are on fixed rate mortgage short, you know, two or five year fixed rate mortgages have to remortgage uh, in the very near future. Uh, and they're suddenly finding that the, the products are not available uh, and the prices are going up hugely. Uh, the next one here, if you listen very carefully, you can actually hear the housing chains collapsing across the UK. Uh, this is absolutely correct. This is gonna have a fairly major effect on many, many people. Uh, and already we're seeing people commenting about them uh, having uh, put their house on the market and suddenly they're not getting any viewings anymore because the mortgages aren't available. Uh, and uh, and that the next one here, uh, there might be a housing market crash, uh, but look on the bright side, the millionaires have just been given a massive tax cut, so they'll be able to hoover up all the cheaper houses and rent them back to the people who lose theirs. And that, that comment is spot on. I, I would say so, yeah. but but uh, let's let's move on because the question, the next question is, what is the uh, impact going to be on people's lives, well, let's consider the issue of food. And if you remember on uh, Monday's program, I was making the point that the UK is already importing or has for many years imported uh, well over 50% of its of its food. Um, and uh, well, and as we were making the point, if you're a vegetarian or vegan, in fact, it's much higher. If you're a vegan, it's more like 80% of the food that you need is imported. Um, so uh, let's bring this on. It's actually a Reuters report uh, in on this particular publication. European farmers warn of shortages due to energy crisis. Uh, and I think this is perhaps the most concerning aspect of this. So here's a quote uh, from a French farmer. In 2021, we paid 100,000 euros for electricity. This year, we will pay not far from 200,000 euros. And today, the proposal I got is 750,000 euros per year, provided I sign for three years. That is to say, I'm asked to pay 2.2 million euros to my energy supplier. And David, uh, the, the farmers in Europe are already saying that they will stop production. Um, and this is this has got to be probably the most concerning aspect of this of this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, look at look at uh, Iceland as an example. This is where Brian the, the idea that it's the bankers is 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 too narrow an interpretation. Iceland. Uh, were 90 odd percent, 95 percent uh, independent in food production, mostly under glass, um, generated from geothermal and other other heat sources. And um, they decided that uh, this wasn't on. They weren't going to have all these glass houses. The government decided it wasn't eco-friendly and uh, basically uh, taxed and uh, them out of existence. And now the Ninety-five percent food importers are no longer independent in food, and this was a state policy driven by the green agenda. So there's many sources for this, but the the the, the, the some of the sources embedded in government, some of the sources embedded in banks and international organisations like the IMF, and some of the sources are embedded in tax exempt foundations. That network remains very difficult to identify. Oh. Uh, of course, but uh, those networks are themselves dependent on money in order to do what they do. Let's remember there was the statement from the Bank of England, I think, which said 
uh, if you don't ad adopt the green agenda policies, we will put well, Mark Carney. Yes, yeah, we will put you out of business. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah there's absolutely. a lot of questions yeah. at the moment. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to the Donbass. Uh, and uh, well, we here we have uh, somebody voting. Brian, I realize that elections, maybe Mark can comment on this in a second. Fair elections are something which is uh, increasingly unlikely to happen in Western countries, but uh, certainly we have uh, uh, the referendum taking place. Uh, the uh, turnout uh, in, uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk was well over 90%. In the other two regions, it was uh, in the 70, 80% range. Uh, but let's have a look at the results then. In the Donetsk People's Republic, 99.23% of people voted uh, that the Donetsk People's Re Republic should join the Russian Federation. In Luhansk, it was 98.42%. Uh, uh, in Zaporozhye, it was 93.11%. In Kherson, it was 87.05%. Uh, and uh, well, so sorry, let's uh, just bring that previous one back on screen. Um, so as I say, people voting. Now, Vanessa Bailey has been there in the last couple of days, has witnessed uh, the procedure and so on. Uh, there were other uh, witnesses, other uh, assessors from other countries. So I believe these people are from Ghana, for example, watching the procedure. Uh, it was all above board. There was no electronic voting. It was all on paper. And uh, I'll just add to it, Mike, this wasn't what you're seeing on the screen at the moment wasn't a, a standard of facility that was unique in one place. This was the general standard of facilities provided for voting wherever that voting was to take place. So extremely high standard. It wasn't as if people were being pulled into uh, burnt out buildings in order to vote. These were purpose uh, uh, facilitated uh, buildings and facilities. Well, exactly. So so let's just uh, show, show a short little piece of video here, which gives uh, gives you an idea of uh, how the vote was going. So, and of course, um, Western press hugely cynical about this, but it's the same Western press that doesn't want to inve investigate our own system of uh, of voting. So uh, Vanessa was was there. She was uh, she took that uh, video footage. Uh, she'll hopefully be with us on Friday. She's traveling today, but uh, unfortunately, the internet connection in uh, the Donbass was not sufficient that she could have uh, joined us uh, live from there. But here's the thing, that, that building that you've just seen, uh, very nicely uh, apportioned inside and so on, uh, all the way through the process that she was in that building, uh, they were hearing uh, the, uh, how do we describe it, the, the uh, missile, the, the air defense systems operating. Uh, and uh, so there was definitely a threat of missiles coming in to the, to the area. Um, this is what that building looked like um, this morning. Um, so so the, what you saw on screen on the video was yesterday, and this is what the building looks like this morning uh, because uh, the, the air defences were not operating uh, to the level that they were during the day overnight, and uh, this building was targeted. So this is targeted by Ukraine. Well, in fact, no, it wouldn't have been, probably wouldn't have been targeted by Ukraine. It's highly likely it was targeted by 
American and Western interests because this is how the war is actually being fought, that uh, target selection is being carried out by US, UK, NATO forces. But uh, that's another civilian target, we'll say, by Ukraine. Um, so, David, uh, let's look at another target, and this time one which is under sea. Yes, so we go to the Baltic, uh, the, the Western Baltic, near the coast of Denmark, Germany and Sweden. Um, and uh, there is a very strange uh, site in the middle of the sea where gas is bubbling to the surface. And this is, of course, methane from uh, the Russian uh, gas pipeline. And uh, Radek Sikorsky, who is an uh, MEP, um, uh, Vice President of the EU-UK uh, Friendship Group and Chairman of the EU-USA USA delegation, and incidentally husband of the Integrity Initiative's favourite Anne Applebaum, he says, uh, thank you, USA. Uh, indeed he does, so, um, which, which brings us on to, uh, the, well, let's look at how the Express covered this, Nord Stream 1 and 2 mapped. Uh, why are Russian-built pipelines leaking? Countries affected? Yes, uh, so experts su suspect the three punctures in two pipelines may have been the result of sabotage, you think? Okay. Nord Stream 1 and 2 are two sections of the same pipeline to deliver gas from Russia to Western Europe. Danish Energy Agency confirmed that the network can sustain three puncture holes this afternoon. Uh, Bjorn Lund's lecture on seismology at the Swedish National Seismic Network confirmed explosions had occurred. Um, so, explosions have occurred. Um, a well-connected gentleman uh, says, thank you, USA. So who's to blame? Well, clearly, it's Putin. Uh, the Telegraph here says, they're quite clear, Putin accused of sabotage over Nord Stream gas pipeline explosions. The ships are warned, warned to stay away from the five-mile exclusion zone. Um, and uh, the um, uh, Prime Minister of Poland said, today we faced an act of sabotage. We don't know all the details of what happened, but we see clearly it's an act of sabotage related to the next step in escalation of the situation in the Ukraine. The New York Times is equally sure. Your Wednesday briefing, Russia suspected of pipeline sabotage. Um, context, the pipelines have been a focal point of the broader confrontation between Russia and Europe after the EU imposed economic sanctions. Russia began with holding its natural gas, threatening the continent's energy supply. Analysis, the leaks underscored the vulnerability of Europe's energy infrastructure, even as the continent, the, the continent tries to wean itself off supplies from Russia. Offshore gas fields in the Mediterranean near Israel could offer a solution. Isn't that interesting? There also, those, those gas fields are also near Lebanon. Uh, more on that story another week. Um, so, uh, the, so the, the, what the mainstream media in Britain and America, the Telegraph and the New York Times, are asking you to believe, Mike, is that Putin went to the Western Baltic near Germany to blow up his own pipeline. Do you find that credible? Oh, absolutely, David. <laughs> yeah, you better qualify that article because, no, we don't find it credible at all. It is not credible. This is clearly, uh, this is clearly the deep state operating here. Uh, Putin could have easily turned a valve if he wanted to cause trouble with the... Uh, what? With this the... is it. Putin's got a valve. He's probably got a button. It's probably not even a valve anymore, Brian. It's a button. He could just stop it. Why on earth 
would he blow up the pipeline? The greatest bargaining chip, the greatest geopolitical asset he has is that Germany is dependent on Russian gas. Why would he blow up the pipeline? And nobody in the entire Western media, apart from Tucker Carlson, we'll come to him in a moment, seems capable of asking this question. It's astonishing. Well, it's um, so you have to go... Sorry, sorry, David, perhaps we should just bring Mark in and see whether he finds it believable <laughs> as, a, as a member of the USA. Uh, definitely not. Um, the, the energy, as David uh, uh, talked about there, in Putin's hands is his greatest leverage, uh, certainly. And um, there would be no incentive to do that whatsoever. Uh, imagine the effort it took to install those pipelines and the cost. And um, so, you, yeah, you have a very uh, deep hole to look down here in terms of sorting out who done it. But, you know, the idea that Russia did it is is really absurd. Uh, we, we don't know all the answers, but if, if you're looking at this through the lens of kind of a James Bond movie plot, you can imagine Israeli, other Western saboteurs perhaps carrying this out and uh, trying to use it to, um, you know, defame Putin even more. Well, so, you know, there's, it's just one of those things that, that we have to study a little bit, but I think we can make at least some preliminary conclusions here. So well, we, we might, we might have a couple of answers in a second, but anyway, David, uh, what is, uh, what is Andrew uh, Karibko saying on this? Good God. Well, this, you have to go to the, the blogs and the newsletters to get any reasonable analysis. So he says the uh, Anglo-American axis benefits from the ecological terrorist attack in the Baltic Sea. This is true. This terrorist attack destroyed any chance of an energy-driven Russian-German rapprochement, immediately catapulted Poland into the position of being one of the continent's most pivotal, pivotal energy hubs, and thus took the Anglo-American axis plans for dividing and ruling Europe to the next level. These are at least reasonable points, are points worth considering. He continues, unprecedented damage to uh, the pipeline was an act of sabotage, as De Denmark, Germany, Poland and Russia all suspect, although no one can agree who carried it out. Um, Kiev blamed Russia um, in a remix of earlier conspiracy, conspiracy theory alleging that Russia uh, regularly bombs the nuclear power plant that's also under its control. Um, this uh, ridiculous scenario can therefore reasonably be ruled out, especially since Moscow could just keep the tap turned off for technical reasons without risking getting caught sabotaging its own pipelines in NATO-controlled waters. This seems to me a devastating point. Um, and he concludes, uh, sabotaging the pipelines accomplishes precisely that by completely disincentivizing Germany from potentially clinging to whatever energy-driven plans it might have for eventually repairing relations with Russia. With that scenario confidently discounted after Monday's night's ecological terrorist attack in the Baltic Sea, which also served the purpose of making Poland amongst the continent's most pivotal energy hubs, Germany might also figure that it doesn't have anything more to lose vis-a-vis -vis Russia by possibly being the first country to send cutting-edge battle tanks to Kiev. The artificially manufactured strategic inertia would thus doom Russian-German relations for a decade. Now, you might argue with one or two of the details there, but, but broadly, that's a rational analysis of what went down here. And um, you then see uh, what some American politicians have been saying about it, and it's, well, uh, the case gets even stronger. Yeah, well, let's let, hold on one second, because before we get to that, 
because you, you covered the Telegraph, I think it was in the New York Times, two relatively serious newspapers and their coverage. Uh -huh. uh, let's have a look at what The Sun did this morning. Black Ops, how divers from Putin's Special Ops Sabotage Unit could have blown up Nord Stream gas pipeline right under NATO's noses. They did it right under NATO's noses. So let's have a look at, uh, at the, the special uh, infographic that they provided. How Putin's Special Ops Sabotage Unit could have blown up Nord Stream gas pipeline right under NATO's noses with a disguised Special Ops ship. Uh, Brian, there you go, a fishing boat. Uh, option one, Russian Navy frogmen, divers descend to plant explosives. Uh, option two, a drone submarine sets explosives remotely. If they had a drone submarine, why do they need the little specially disguised ship? Well, I'm just going to say a little later, we're going to talk about police visits as a result of spreading hate speech and misinformation. I think the sun should get a visit because this is, disgraceful. This is just disgraceful Okay, stuff. well, let's put it back on. So uh, Nord Stream depth, 260 to 360 feet. Uh, and uh, they say that the mines were placed on pipeline with a remote trigger. <laughs> They're hardly going to light a fuse and sort of swim away, are <laughs> exactly. they? But, uh... Right. So anyway, so but let's be a bit more realistic about this. Uh, now, Mark has suggested one potential. Uh, let's have a look at another. Uh, now, just remember that in June this year, Baltops 22 was in exactly that area. Uh, this is the premier Baltic Sea Maritime exercise. It's a NATO exercise. Uh, and as CPAR was reporting here, uh, one of the things they were doing during the Baltops 22 exercise was to uh, practice with unmanned underwater vehicles. Uh, to, uh, and in fact, it was mine discovery. It was the thing. So my question is, and it's only a question. I'm not making any allegations. I'm just asking: uh, Is it a coincidence that they were there with this particular type of equipment at the time, and were they perhaps using it as a cover, maybe to lay a couple of mines while they were there? I'm not saying they were, but here's another thing. Uh, here is uh, USS uh, Kearsarge. Now, this is, uh, how do we describe this ship, Brian? Well, I'd, I'd call it a landing dock ship because the key thing is it, it's got the facility for, for smaller vessels to come inside it. Right. Now, this particular ship has been in that region for the last two weeks, uh, and it has been flying its helicopters around exactly this area. But as you can see, it has uh, what they call it a well deck. Yes, uh, so if you wanted to uh, launch some unmanned underwater vehicles, for example, you could do that from there. Very easily, because the whole ship is very big and it's kitted out to do this sort of work, uh, so, amongst other things. So where is USS Kearsarge today? Well, it is off the coast of Cornwall at the, just a, an hour or so ago. This is uh, from maritime vessel traffic. Uh, it's off the coast of Cornwall, uh, rapidly heading away from the Baltic Sea as fast as it can possibly be. So again, this could just be a coincidence, uh, David. Uh, but you, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson uh, sent me a little clip that we're going to talk about. We'll talk about in a second, but let's, let's just watch the clip first. In early February, less than three weeks before the war in Ukraine began, Joe Biden suggested on camera that he might take out these pipelines. Watch. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. But do, but how, will you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. 
So, David, uh, this is all very circumstantial, but, uh, and I think the but is with massive right. capital letters. This, this, is an, this is an example, Mike, of why you're an outrageous conspiracy theorist, right? You have American-controlled waters. You have American ships in the area leaving the scene. You have the American president saying that he's going to do just the thing that's happened. And you put these things together and you come up with this ridiculous conspiracy theory where everybody knows that actually the, the truth is that Putin blew up his own pipeline, traveling the length of the Baltic to do it in a fishing boat with Frogman. And if you look at the Sun's article, the Frogman have got machine guns, that makes them very dangerous, with Frogman in 360 to 260 feet of water, which would make it very difficult for Frogman, but also very difficult for submarines and submersibles, because under in such shallow waters, they're quite likely to get spotted. So he picks the hardest point in the entire world to blow up his own pipeline, where he can just push a button and turn the flow off um, in order to, um, in, 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 no, I've got nothing. Yes. Indeed. Okay, Mike, it, you, it, might have, it, you might have a point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mark. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm bursting at the seams here. Um, yeah, this is all very interesting. Uh, good job putting this together to at least show a trail of circumstantial evidence where the dots can be reasonably connected. Um, I think we've got something here that is gonna be far above other alternative news and certainly above the mass media cartel uh, in terms of what they're reporting, something credible. Um, it, it's interesting too, you know, you showed that election a little while ago where it had all the hallmarks of an honest election, clear, transparent ballot boxes, everything transparent, the ballots going into the boxes, the count being done locally and in the open, those are all the hallmarks of an honest election, and that was targeted too. So if I wanna expand the conspiracy theory that David's talking about, uh, they target both the gas pipelines and a little bit belatedly, they target that election location. So, yes, but, um, yes, but Mark, gonna, Mark as, as I say, they were targeting that all the way through the process. It was only the fact they had missile defense systems in place that they didn't uh, achieve yeah. the target. Yeah, so if we want to be the ultimate tinfoil hat wearing guys, uh, we can say, you know, maybe Biden had a hand directly or indirectly in both those events. But I digress because I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist and get labeled that way. So, but yeah, this this is this is very good. I think this is going to be about the best report people are going to see that at least gives some idea on what could have happened. So, yeah. very good. Thank you. I, I think more. We'll come to the surface, apologies for the pun, yeah. but uh, I'm sure that we are going to start learning a lot more about what happened here because this thing is appears at least now to be so blatant. Yes. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and you, your members should be very welcome uh, or pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but in the meantime, do please uh, share various material uh, that you see on the platforms. Now, uh, quick advertisement. I just want to advise everybody that the Bank of England would like uh, you all to join the conversation and they are going to be running uh, a number of public events in the next few weeks. Uh, we will let you know about the future events uh, as they come. Uh, but first of all, uh, we've got one in Edinburgh, which is taking place on Tuesday, the 11th of October at 5 p.m. Uh, this is all about having your say and how the economic situation is affecting you. Uh, registration for this closes on the 4th of October and the URL for details is on the screen. So that's b-o-e.uk slash 3blvryaa.
and uh, do get along to that. Uh, sadly, David will not be in the country, so he can't uh, go. But if anybody else that's a UK column viewer uh, would like to go to that, let us know and we'd be very interested in hearing what happened. Yes. Well, let's move on to the subject of the BBC. Obviously, UK column news has always has always got great concerns about the accuracy of the BBC and uh, their reporting in uh, the Ukraine, of course, is typical of a very one-sided report. But it seems the BBC is getting a little bit nervous because they've just produced this very interesting little video clip about how impartial they are and how well they check their uh, information and how they are clearly putting both sides of a an incident so the public is well informed. Let's have a look at how the BBC is now attempting to portray itself. It's really a lot of fake news. before there is real fight in here. Guy just there. Get in here! Refugees are getting out of here and so are we. That is what you think of him. How do you sit across the table to try to stop the war? So there we have it. Mike, I almost don't know what to say because the BBC puts out a clip about how impartial it is and demonstrates its reporting over Ukraine, which is completely partial. They only give one side of the story and they've used Ukraine as a perfect example of how impartiality in the BBC or accuracy in the BBC doesn't fit. Uh, there was one truthful comment in that. Okay. Trust is earned. Yes. Well, the BBC hasn't earned the trust, but are they getting worried? I'm, I suspect that the BBC is beginning to realise that people are now seeing through the propaganda, but we're going to help reinforce what, uh, what the BBC is capable of, propaganda, whether it's over-reporting in Ukraine or reporting with Iran. So let's uh, just bring up this. We've shown it before, but I want to put it in context again. UK column in 2016 picking up that the BBC was producing material 
which was clearly designed to inflame trouble in uh, uh, Iran over the wearing of headscarves by women and uh, the BBC pushing material from groups who were clearly inflaming the tension over this whole affair. We even tried to speak to the BBC about what they were doing because in some of their reporting, they were clearly putting women at risk if we were to believe what the BBC had to say themselves. In the last couple of days, we've also uh, demonstrated that BBC employees, such as this gentleman, Cheyenne, working for BBC Monitoring, BBC World and the BBC on disinformation, conspiracy theories, cults and extremism, was busy uh, putting out information which was also helping to inflame what was happening in Iran. And one tweet here in particular, what is it, what is it saying? Uh, in Tehran tonight, down with the dictator, we don't want the Islamic Republic. So this is about regime change and the BBC, while claiming it is impartial in all its reporting on one hand, is pushing this out. Now let's have a look at this clip of the BBC reporting on what is happening in Iran. Now, there's been no let up in the protests in Iran, despite the country's president warning that decisive action will be taken against those demonstrating. There have been 11 straight days of protests after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who'd been arrested by the so-called morality police. Women, life, freedom, that has been the rallying cry. Scenes like this spreading across most of Iran's 31 provinces overnight. Well, in response, the security forces, including riot police, have been firing directly into crowds. At least 41 people have been killed and more than 1,200 have been arrested so far. Well, Nazanin Boniadi, the Iranian-born British actress and human rights activist, spoke to me just a few moments ago and started by expressing her shock at what we've been seeing. I'm extremely alarmed. I'm very concerned for the people on the ground, especially since they have lost, uh, well, their internet has been shut down by the Iranian authorities so they can continue um, killing and injuring protesters in the dark. So my, my priority right now is to get internet access back to the Iranian people. I'll come back to how you perhaps do that in a moment, but you were born in Iran, your family fled the revolution. You stayed in touch with so many people in the country. Give me an idea of the sorts of things they've been saying to you. I'm hearing from hundreds of people uh, every day inside Iran, most of them very young. I'm talking late teens to mid-twenties. And they're saying that they are done with this regime, that they keep rising up um, every few years. You had, of course, the big 2009 protests where the, the demands were very different. It was, where is my vote? There were calls for reform. And then in 2019, you started to see calls for the Islamic Republic to be toppled and for democracy. And now you're seeing that escalated to the next level. They are done with this regime. They want them gone. But 2019, it was brutally put down. Amnesty have been speaking about uh, their alarm at the harrowing pattern of the security forces deliberately firing live ammunition into protesters. Uh, we are seeing again a really brutal crackdown, aren't we? 
Yes, we are. But unfortunately, there's no um, adequate human rights governance in the world. There's no mechanism for us to, to, to hold autocrats responsible and accountable. There are no avenues for, uh, domestically for justice and accountability inside Iran. So what we are calling for and Amnesty is calling for is for, is for people to call their representatives and demand, wherever they may be, Europe, America, to demand that these lawmakers stand with the Iranian people and create mechanisms that holds the, the Iranians. Well, the text at the end there added by UK column, but the point is that an eight and a half minute clip by the BBC simply gave one political activist the opportunity to put her views across with no reporting from any other sources from inside Iran. So the BBC, we've shown their film of how they're impartial, but when they come to reporting on Ukraine or reporting on Iran, you are only going to get the, the BBC agenda. And uh, we took a little look at this lady, Bernardi, and um, the BBC fails to declare much about her apart from the fact that she's an activist. In fact, this is a seasoned political campaigner. And uh, if we pop up some of the things on the screen, three nationalities apparently. So she's, she's used UK, she's using America, um, moved out of Iran because obviously they presumably had the finances to leave Iran when it was getting difficult. Um, what country does she live in? What country does she believe in? It's very difficult to tell. Uh, she went to an independent school in Hampstead, London. Uh, she was quite a talented biological scientist, but turned actress. Um, then we discover that um, she's, she's now involved with the media. So CNN, we've got there, the Washington Post and Defence One, which was a, um, a periodical you recognised, uh, Mike, we'll come on to that. She's appeared on the BBC World News. She was awarded lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So this is not an ordinary actress. This is somebody who is working at very high level with people who would change many things in the world. A Scientologist and selected as a possible wife for Tom Cruise. So that should... Uh, Lucky really... escape there, perhaps. Uh, well, uh, she had a trial period, but decided she didn't like him and she rejected the relationship. She said she was treated very badly by the Church of Scientology and she left soon afterwards. And now she's apparently a non-practicing Muslim. Very difficult to know what this lady is, apart from the fact she is selected as the opinion on what's happening in Iran without any proper counter-narrative. So this is Defence One, um, headline of one of her articles, I'm an actor and activist, silence is just not an option. And uh, this is one of the key quotes. I get to portray the human condition as an actress. We've, we've added that for clarification. Uh, and as an activist, I can hopefully help change the human condition. Uh, David, before I just uh, run through the, to the end of this little segment, uh, this lady is a lot more than just an innocent little Iranian uh, actress. In fact, she's only been back to Iran once, apparently. Um, but now she's working at the level of the Council on Foreign Relations to decide what should be happening inside Iran itself.
Yes, the CFR is is the big clue there that the, you're dealing with deep state activists here. You talk, you ask, are, they, are these people bankers? Yes, some of them are. Some of them aren't. Here's an example: uh, the uh, the changing humanity line. That's also um, Marxist. You know, we're going to have the new communist man. We're going to we're going to create a revolution that's going to change the nature of people. People will, will become different, and we will have utopia. We will have the kingdom of God on earth, but we will create it. That's their religion, their philosophy. Seems to be hers too. Uh, I, w I would agree with that, and she's a lady we need to keep a very close eye on. But just a little bit on Defence One. Here's the periodical itself. Uh, if we want to read a bit about it, it was founded in 2013. Uh, for military and security professionals, stakeholders, citizens, what, for what they need to know, from senior leaders in Washington to commanders abroad and next generation thinkers far from the political scrum. So it's not bad from actress to this. Very quickly, uh, Mark, I, I'm sure you'll want to respond with Council on Foreign Relations, uh, but this lady is a lot more than some Activate, uh, some, some actress concerned with human rights in Iran. Yeah, the CFR connection is interesting and not altogether surprising. If you go back in history, like for, for instance, when Chiang Kai-shek was um, disemboweled politically and forced to go to Formosa, which became Taiwan, and uh, communist China took over, communism took over in China, the CFR had a major hand in that. And so CFR manipulation for regime change goes way back and it's very consistent. It's always very subterranean. You got to ferret it out like you guys are doing here now. So this is uh, very consistent with the CFR's longtime machinations. And so this lady is obviously a change agent. It's interesting that she uses the word actress uh, in parallel with activist. Uh, what do you mean actress? See, I mean, that's almost an open admission that she's an agent of some kind at some level. Uh, that's a very strange term to use. And um, yeah, the the total disrespect for the Iranian culture, and they also overlook the possibility that this is another contrived protest, AKA Ukraine in 2014, AKA, AKA Egypt in 2011, and other um, contrived or um, otherwise, you know, clandestinely formed protests that aren't necessarily really grassroots uprisings at all. Those questions aren't even asked. And given what we know about BBC media action, um, I'm sure that plays a hand too, along with the CFR connection. So this has all the fingerprints of past events that we learned were highly manipulated, excuse me, manipulated. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. Well, just to reinforce the point about Defence One, here's the executive ed editor, Kevin Barron, We've highlighted uh, for you that he's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So it's pretty uh, clear to see what's going on here. Let's just look at a second clip of this lady herself telling us what's really in her head.
Now, my next guest is the Hollywood star Nazanin Boniardi. Her list of credits range from Hotel Mumbai, Iron Man, Counterpart and Homeland. But the British-Iranian actress is also a long-time campaigner for human rights in Iran. She's just back from Calais in France, where she's been meeting those who fled the Tehran regime. She's also been campaigning for the release of the British woman Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, the story we were covering on this programme yesterday. So, uh, Nazanin Boniardi, welcome here to the programme. Why don't we start with uh, what you've been doing in the last few days uh, in Calais. I mean, uh, how many uh, of these asylum seekers are there in Calais in these makeshift camps and what are conditions like? Well, the conditions are demoralizing and inhumane. Um, there are about a thousand people there at the moment, asylum seekers, from places like the Gambia, uh, Senegal, Kuwait, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Sudan. And I had a ch the chance to interact with many of them. Um, because I'm a Persian speaker, um, I was able to communicate mostly with the Iranians. Um, and they're in dire straits. They're fleeing persecution in their homeland, caught between uh, an international community that uh, rejects migrants and is intolerant towards migrants and a homeland that's no longer tenable. And these are some of the pictures uh, from that visit. I mean, you've worked for many years or worked uh, with Amnesty, highlighting the plight in Iran. Uh, just from that sort of work, from these sorts of conversations, what are people actually fleeing from? Well, it's religious and political persecution. And my parents uh, were, you know, uh, political as uh, had granted, were granted political asylum to the UK from Iran in 1979. So this is deeply personal to me. So that for me is, is the killer point. This is deeply personal to her. This is to do with her in a personal capacity. This is not to do with taking an objective view on what's going on, but this is the lady that the BBC chooses. And the B, uh, sorry, if we pop this one on screen, the BBC also now uh, getting in on the fact that there's problems with uh, reception of certain material on the internet in Iran. Uh, so the BBC is now coming up with articles to inflame the tension over this. And who are they using? Well, here's uh, Nazanin again. Uh, she's brought in in order to uh, comment on this. So this is unbiased uh, BBC reporting. Uh, but of course, we've already pointed out that uh, uh, Lillian Landor, the senior controller, is working via the UN to put political pressure on Iran. And uh, yes, somebody I think already mentioned this, that of course, BBC Media Action admitting that it was using its staff to uh, effectively lever um, regime change. So Mark, this uh, brings us on, I think, to the fact uh, you picked up on the fact that if you are talking online, uh, you can be accused of either misinformation or hate speech, but in Germany at least it's looking pretty ugly. Yeah, this is a great segue. If I was in Germany right now, if any of us were in Germany right now writing about or talking about what we're talking about right now and some of the other subject matter we've covered today, we very well might hear the police knock at the door, be fined, and possibly go to jail. This is one of the worst circumstances many of us have seen in terms of uh, direct attacks on free speech. And you know, what we have to realize when you look at the BBC and the New York Times, which uh, actually published this article, although Yahoo News uh, forwarded it, the one you're showing on the screen, what we have to realize is we're not really looking at media organizations at all in terms of what traditional journalism is about. These organizations are not performing the journalistic enterprise. They're using information as a weapon 
to effect change. And in many ways, it's much more effective and dangerous and pernicious than actual military attacks. Um, I recall that during World War I, a quick point, there was a German publisher, excuse me, a UK, a British publisher of the Daily Mail, I believe it was, and the German Navy actually attacked his estate because the publisher of the Daily Mail uh, leading up to World War One, when the Germans were being demonized for bayoneting Belgian children and like all that kind of stuff, the, the, the German Navy actually attacked the Daily Mail editor's estate with a naval um, assault of some degree because they saw him as a enemy combatant. And that's what we're looking at in the modern big elite journalism world. We're looking at stuff that really isn't journalism at all. It's meant to inflame it's meant to instill fear. It's meant to carry out the basic process of warfare against cultures and peoples. And the New York Times running this article that you're talking about now, the most disturbing thing about it is that the Times talks about this arresting people in Germany for online hate speech. They talk about it like it's basically an acceptable thing. So it's not like the New York Times is saying, uh, you know, we have to respect all views. You know, I, I may not agree with what he says, but I'll defend his right to say it. That's the old basic journalistic free speech principle. That's just completely out the window. The New York Times is just shy of totally approvingly talking about this matter. Uh, and, Mark, uh, the Mark, article... Mark, if I can just yeah. come, come in, I'll help you out here. I'll just read you, uh, I'll read the audience a little bit of the report here because I think it's important. So this first one says, when the police pounded the door before dawn at home, in northwest Germany, a bleary-eyed young man in his boxer shorts answered. The officers asked for his father, who was at work. They told him his 51-year-old father was accused of violating laws against online hate speech, insults and misinformation. He'd shared an image on Facebook with an inflammatory statement about immigration falsely attributed to a German politician. Um, the police then scoured the home for about 30 minutes, seizing a laptop and tablet as evidence, prosecutors said. And uh, the second paragraph here goes on. Uh, at that exact moment in March, a similar scene was playing out at 100 other homes across Germany, part of a coordinated nationwide crackdown that continues to this day. And, and the report from an official uh, federal criminal police officer said, we're making it clear that anyone who posts hate messages or misinformation, it would appear, must expect the police to be at the front door afterwards. So this is very clear. If you, if you dare to challenge the statements from the BBC or German uh, mainstream media, um, you risk having the police not only coming into your home, but uh, stealing assets. Yeah, and, and the article goes on to say, I was about to read some of that myself. The article goes on to say, Democracies such as the U.S. have avoided policing the Internet so far because of free speech. And there are the times, again, it's kind of prevaricating, you know, almost like free speech in the U.S. is not really that important as long as the mass media cartel, cartel can dominate the narrative. And that leaves a sea of slurs and targeted harassment and tweets telling public figures that they'd be better off dead. But over the past several, several years, Germany has forged another path criminally prosecuting people for online hate speech. You see, they don't even go on to say, for instance, that the word hate is such an amorphous word. It's such a uh, ambiguous word that can mean different things to different people. And so they use these Orwellian terms 
in a fixed fashion. In, in, in other words, they're comfortable using uh, the term hate speech to label anyone that disagrees with the mass media cartel. That just shows you um, as if we need more proof that this media that we criticize, the whole world of the mass media cartel is not really journalism at all. It's informational warfare. It's weaponized reporting disguised as journalism. And uh, it, it's just across the gamut um, trying to uh, create the necessary atmosphere or climate to overturn regimes and, and whatnot. And that doesn't mean the Iranian regime is perfect. No one ever said they were. But is it the West's job? Is it the prerogative of the West to constantly go uh, in search of monsters to destroy and engage in you know, regime change uh, arbitrarily when we don't know all the facts and send obvious change agents in the field who are members of the CFR to do it? I mean, it's, it's hidden in plain sight that this is not journalism in the traditional sense at all. And now you're showing the next item here. Uh, this, in a way, goes hand in hand with what's going on in Germany. It's sort of the other side of the coin, you might say. Um, in the U.S., we have this um, a law that we thought was dead and buried, or at least we thought it was in our rearview mirror. It's the uh, Journalism Competition and Protection Act. And uh, it was discussed back in March of 2021. And what they're basically trying to do is create sort of a force field around the conventional orthodox media and protect them from competition. And it's under the guise of, well, uh, big tech is not providing all the uh, platforms or, or is, is sometimes um, limiting what the big media can say. They're, they're claiming there's this conflict between big media and big tech, but I think that's largely a foil. Um, so they can um, forge actually a um, stronger alliance between big media and big tech and get, get Congress to protect the big media from the rising challenge of the alternative media. And that seems to be really what this is about. And um, indeed, back in March of 2012, when they were debating the JCPA, the Journalism Competition and Protection Act, back at that time, Representative Ted Deutsch, a Democrat from Florida, he stressed that responsible news outlets could only be those which avoid disinformation and conspiracy theories. And um, that was back then, but now what happened was the JCPA was recently approved. It made a comeback and it was approved 15 to seven by the Senate Judiciary Committee in latter September, which is very recently, obviously. It, it would empower, and this is according to Breitbart, it would empower, empower establishment media organizations allowing them to form cartels to collude with big tech. Supporters of the bill have attempted to present it as a means to preserve local journalism. On Thursday, September 22, the bill's sponsor, Senator Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota, she dismissed these criticisms, contending the measure is not about content, but simply about negotiating prices. But then Senator Tom Cotton, an Arkansas Republican, he came back and warned that this bill will lead to greater censorship. While it does not allow these cartels to exclude views expressed by its content, he said, these cartels, Cotton further emphasized, are allowed to exclude based on the usual totally subjective factors such as trustworthiness, fake news, extremism, misinformation, hate speech, conspiracy, authoritativeness, etc. But as I point out in an article that's soon to be published, the media already is 
the big media, the orthodox media already is in essence a cartel. And the concern here is that it could form a media cartel. I would argue that the media essentially already is. And they've always rallied around certain points like globalism is inevitable and ultimately beneficial. U.S. elections could never be outright stolen. Abortion is an eternal right. Uh, big pharma, the vaccines, so-called vaccines, even when there's real data showing their dangers are safe and effective. And the world of politics has a long-term agenda and should never be seriously considered conspiratorial. These and many other things, all the major media outlets with very few exceptions agree on. Um, they, they never, uh, uh, as we showed earlier with Iran, they never show both sides of the story. Instead, no matter which mass media cartel outlet you're talking about in the US, in, in, in the UK, or pretty much around the world, they all have the same narrative. So they all operate like a cartel. And the concern here, concern here is they might form a cartel, but, but really they're already there. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a major uh, deception going on here. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, is anybody standing up to what's happening? Maybe there is. David? Maybe. We'll see. But this is quite interesting since it's the Italian elections. Uh, Giorgia Meloni pledges to govern for all Italians, writes the BBC. She's claimed victory in a general election with her Brothers of Italy party. Um, and we have a short clip in Italian, but with subtitles. Potrei farne tante altre di queste domande. A monte c'è quella che ci facciamo oggi, perché la famiglia è un nemico? Perché la famiglia fa così paura? C'è una risposta unica per tutte queste domande. Perché ci definisce, perché è la nostra identità. Perché tutto quello che ci definisce in questo tempo è un nemico. Per chi vorrebbe che non avessimo più un'identità e che, fossero, che fossimo solamente schiavi, consumatori perfetti. E allora è sotto attacco l'identità nazionale è sotto attacco l'identità religiosa, è sotto attacco l'identità di genere, è sotto attacco l'identità familiare. Non devo potermi definire italiana, cristiana, donna, madre, no. Io devo essere cittadino X, genere X, genitore 1, genitore 2, devo essere un numero. Perché quando sarò solamente un numero, quando non avrò più un'identità, quando non avrò più radici, beh, allora sarò lo schiavo perfetto in balia della grande speculazione finanziaria. Il consumatore perfetto. E questa è la ragione per la quale questa è la ragione per la quale oggi noi facciamo tanta paura. Questa è la ragione per la quale oggi questo appuntamento fa tanta paura. Perché noi non vogliamo essere dei numeri, noi siamo qui per dire che noi non siamo dei numeri, noi difenderemo il valore della persona umana, di ogni singola persona umana, perché ognuno di noi ha un codice genetico unico e irripetibile. E questo piaccia o no a del sacro. Lo difenderemo, difenderemo Dio, la patria e la famiglia che fanno tanto schifo a qualcuno. Lo faremo per difendere la nostra libertà perché noi non saremo mai schiavi e semplici consumatori in balia della speculazione finanziaria. Ecco la nostra missione, ecco perché oggi sono venuta qui. Scriveva Chesterton ormai più di un secolo fa, vediamo se, lo, se ve lo trovo, fuochi verranno attizzati per dimostrare che 2 più 2 fa 4. Spade verranno sguainate per dimostrare che le foglie sono verdi in estate. Quel tempo è arrivato, signori. Siamo pronti. Grazie.
told gentlemen, um, she wants to be able to maintain her identity with reference to God, family, and nation, and she quotes Chesterton. Um, what do you think? Well, it's, it's, it's a brave stance because, you know, at a basic level, she is standing up and saying all of the right things. The question is, does she really mean what she says and is she going to drive it through? Some people already saying, oh, well, she is herself controlled by more powerful people behind the scenes. Uh, that's, that, that is a possibility. But uh, on face value, she's got some guts for standing up and telling, telling it like it is. Yeah, I think she's got some of the some of the, the the targets very much in her crosshairs. Other other things, not so much. I, I see Vanessa Bailey was tweeting out whilst we were live that uh, that uh, the uh, Georgia Maloney is is all behind the Ukraine uh, government and Ukraine uh, war. Uh, so there's obviously things that she doesn't understand. But anyway, how is the mainstream media greeting him? We've got Sky News here. Uh, Georgia Maloney, she's called for a naval blockade of Africa to stop migrants. Who is this far-right leader set to become Italy's first female prime minister? A century ago, so they start their piece, a century ago, 1922, Benito Mussolini's black shirts marched on Rome. The start of 20 years of fascist rule. Now Italy could be the first time to elect a prime minister whose party is rooted in neo-fascism. Oh, okay. Um, we go to the Guardian. What are they saying? The election of Italy's Fascist adjacent to Georgia Maloney is a public reminder that women can be just as awful as men, writes Van <laughs> Badum. I wouldn't vote for her if I were on fire. I, I would question if you're on fire, is voting really for anybody going to be top of your agenda? Have you not got more pressing matters to deal with? Uh, anyway, uh, but I'm in nauseated awe. Notice how they always feel nauseated. That's how Hitler felt about the Jews, but never mind. I'm in nauseated awe of what it must take for a woman to succeed amongst hard right conservatives. So this is not subtle stuff, right? And uh, again, the Babylon Bee nails it. They, they have a piece here. Leftists announced they no longer support strong independent women. With the election of right-wing candidate George Maloney as Italy's first female prime minister, the left announced it no longer supports strong, independent women. This quote, this is an absolute disaster. Maybe women do belong in the kitchen, said Italian leftist Atlantic contributor Gianni Mozzarella. Quote, if we had spent less time empowering women, maybe we would have stopped this far, far right, right-wing fascist, far extremist, far, far Nazi, right extremist, right-winger from getting elected. Experts in the EU, World Economic Forum, and famed supervillain organisation Spectre uh, have warned, are warning that Maloney is extremely dangerous. We can't overstate just how far, far, far right extremist and fascist this extremist fascist far right woman really is, said World Economic Founder, World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab. She's a danger to a glorious dream of a new world order she be, because she believes in things like family and the infinite worth of the individual, which I must remind you are things that only fascists believe in. So I thought I thought the, the Babylon Bee, who actually I think got that out before the Guardian article, absolutely nailed it. Um, I would point people, an old article that I, I did for the column, Who Are You Calling a Fascist? looks at actually what, it, what fascism actually is and the nature of the economic errors that are core to it. Um, and also I pointed Benito Mussolini, who said, all with, what is fascism? All within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. So it is statist. 
Right, so the way to know is this woman a fascist? Is does the state assume, assume all power, or does she distribute it to the people and allow people to make their own decisions and direct their own lives? This will be the key question. Yes, indeed. Well, it's uh, certainly stirring things up, and of course, other people are going to come to the uh, surface as a result of her lead in in those areas. But uh, obviously, a few questions to be asked. I think we're out of time, so we, we've got a final image, which I think has come from you, David. Yes, there's been a lot of absolutely vital information this week on the subject of COVID, and we've just not had time to put it in, but I've got here a final slide that gives you an, an essence of what's happening, and it reads, giant elephant in the room dies of sudden elephant death syndrome. Um, I thought that covered in, in meme form exactly what we're seeing. Yeah. Okay. Well, to, to end, we, we should have a video clip, which is um, the uh, trailer for Safe and Effective, A Second Opinion, um, which uh, follows through on our interview with uh, Mark Sharman, uh, where we were talking about matters to do with vaccine and adverse reactions. So uh, we're going to end on that note today. We'll just play out on that. But I'm going to thank uh, David and uh, Mark Anderson for joining us. We will have a extra time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if you're able to uh, join us for that, that will be very good. Uh, let's just end with this uh, little clip. Your safety will always come first. And a COVID-19 vaccine will only be approved by us, the UK's Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, once it has met robust standards on safety, quality and effectiveness. I was vaccinated because I'm a carer. I've had all three and I have the flu one as well. As far as the government is concerned, I believe they are doing the best thing for the nation. I've got an eight-year-old and I just didn't want to catch it where I didn't have to. To be fair, if this was going to prevent me from having it, then it was all good for me. I wanted to go on holiday. I just thought it was better that I get it done. I wanted to protect other people. The COVID vaccine has been hailed as a medical and logistical success. It's claimed that millions of lives have been saved, but there's growing evidence that the jab can have devastating consequences. They actually told my wife and two children that they had no hope, and if I did survive, it would be from the waist up. I thought I was going to die. I would go to bed at night not thinking I was going to wake up. Those injured by the vaccine feel unrecognised and abandoned by the NHS and a government they trusted. You take one for the team, so I, I took the vaccine, but now the team's running the opposite direction. Just let people know that when it goes wrong, there's like no help at all. The doctors don't know what to do with us. We're literally keeping each other alive. Safety is our watchword, and we are globally recognised for requiring the highest standards of safety, quality and effectiveness for any vaccine. Having been double jabbed and being one of the first to take the Pfizer vaccine, I have, after several months, critically appraising the data, speaking to eminent scientists in Oxford, Stanford and Harvard, speaking to two investigative medical journalists and being contacted by two Pfizer whistleblowers, reluctantly concluded that this vaccine is not completely safe 
and has unprecedented harms, which leads me to conclude that it needs to be suspended until all the raw data has been released for independent analysis. Thank you.